Appreciate everybody staying and hanging out with us. Um, Infinite Content says in the chat, uh, do we need to see who is funding the Alabama Attorney General's campaign? How much money are these auto manufacturers donating to? Uh, that's a question. I'm not sure. I haven't, for some reason, I haven't actually thought to look that up. But it's definitely a good question. Um, and really, it's possible. I mean, you know, who knows? Because it's not like he's faced a primary opponent in a long time. And it's not like he's faced a real general election opponent ever. So, you know, I really don't know that he needs to raise just a whole lot of money. Um, it could just be that he just loves, uh, you know, the powerful. Uh, you know, it really could be as simple as that. I'm not sure. But yeah, so we're in overtime now and um, we are going to take a quick break and then I'll be back to talk about that child labor situation and then we'll play what Adam has got for you. So uh, stay tuned, folks. We will be right back with overtime on the Valley Labor Report. All right, so folks, uh, we are now in overtime. We are off of FM radio. Appreciate you staying and hanging out with us. Um, Adam has some really good segments uh, lined up for you today. So I appreciate him doing that. He had prepared those segments uh, because we, my fiance and I were going to be going to a wedding today, but uh, we both got COVID. So um, unfortunately not gonna be able to go to the wedding, but that's no reason to deprive you of this great content. He has some commentary on Alabama's political engagement, which I think is going to be really good. Um, has a tribute to um, uh, to Mike Davis and Stoughton Lind, who we have both, uh, we've both taken a lot from, uh, in particular, Stoughton Lind. I'm not as familiar with Mike Davis, but Stoughton Lind uh, has really been pivotal, pivotal on, you know, my view of, of unionism and, and stuff like that. Um, he's also got a December labor history roundup for you. So really good stuff. But I didn't want to just touch, I haven't prepared a really big segment on child labor and probably will do something about it in the new year. I'm actually working on a piece for more perfect union on the child labor situation here in Alabama. And so maybe we'll play that when we come back from the new year, if it's ready. But I, I just, I wanted to talk to you about it just kind of off the cuff because the, the news broke yesterday. And so that's one of the reasons that I haven't been able to prepare a big segment on it, but it's, it's just astounding that it really is astounding that, that this is happening in Alabama today and news broke less than 24 hours ago. Man, I haven't heard like, it, and I'm very, I'm scared. 
I was scared yeah. to hear it. It's like there's nothing. There's nothing in you know. There, there's like no. Yeah, you know, you you you're, you're if, if you listen to like talk radio, they're not going to be talking about this this at all. Um, and and so what the the latest is just basically that there's more suppliers in the Hyundai Motor Company uh, supply chain that have been caught using child labor. So previously there were two. There were one. There was one outside of Montgomery in Laverne, and there was one outside of Mobile. That was uh, SL Alabama. Smart Alabama was outside of Montgomery. Well, now there is a plant owned by uh, Washington America Corp, which is a supplier to Hyundai, um, in the South Alabama town of Greenville, and a plant owned by uh, Agent Industrial Company in the East Alabama town of Cassetta. Both of these have been revealed to have been utilizing child labor, children under the age of 16 mm. in manufacturing environments. I mean, you know, again, just like the plants outside of Mobile and outside of Montgomery, these are manufacturing environments. With, yeah, you know, I work at a hospital. We see a lot of a lot of these people as patients because uh, machines are dangerous. Yes. They cut, and they the cut off fingers. That... They, they crush arms. And I mean, they're built to make cars. And uh, if you get in the way. You're not lasting very long. And then um, state and federal agencies, according to Reuters, and I really recommend folks uh, check out this Reuters piece. The title is a Reuters special report child workers found throughout Hyundai Kia supply chain in Alabama. Um, the reporters are Mika Rosenberg, uh, Christina Cook, and Joshua Schneier. Um, really great reporting. They interviewed over 100 current and former workers and managers and community members, uh, just really extensive reporting on this situation. So I haven't even been able to fully digest everything in this, in this, um, in this report, but definitely recommend checking it out. Um, and in addition to those four, now four confirmed uh, Hyundai suppliers in Alabama utilizing child labor, State and federal authorities are now probing whether kids have worked at as many as half a dozen additional manufacturers throughout the automaker supply chain in Alabama. Um, so this is clearly this is clearly a systemic issue. Like this is not just if it was just the Montgomery plant, which was the first thing to come out. If it was just these folks, maybe you could say okay, this is a rogue manager at the Laverne plant who's going crazy and it's just him or her that needs to be held accountable. But clearly this is an entire systemic utilization of children, of children in the United States of America in the year of our Lord 2022 here in Alabama. And so there has to be criminal liability for the executives of this company. If there's not, then what else would criminal liability be for? I mean, if, if, mm. if somebody like you or I, Ben, or Adam, were to put children in the amount of danger that these executives are willingly putting them through on a day-to-day -day basis, we would be in jail. Oh, for sure. For sure. And the idea that these people are just able and to what go other laws are they breaking if they're having children work in these? Yeah. <laughs> if, they're, if they're having children work in these very dangerous plants. There's got to be some other stuff that, uh, and all, and I just wonder about the documentation of status of some of them, like how they, you know, uh, whether they're a victim of trafficking. Like I, I, I wonder right. a lot about these, uh, workers. Well, they shouldn't be workers, but they're workers now, unfortunately. But, uh, but yeah, man, they're, 
most likely they're uh, impoverished people that are already yeah. uh, at the will of some bad system. So it's man, it's tragic to hear that. Yeah, yeah, really tragic. Most of these people are undocumented, as far as I can tell. They're either undocumented or they have like a precarious documentation that's dependent on their employer. Uh, they've been able to secure fake IDs and stuff like that. And uh, but you know, uh, t- uh, the reporters that have talked to some of these workers, uh, they've said like, "Oh yeah, I worked next to children," and it was obvious that they were children. It was obvious that they were children, but uh, you know, they uh, you know the ability for workers in these situations, which is why right-wing capitalists like the system of immigration that we have in this country as it is right now. That is why they, uh, uh, that is why they like for undocumented immigrants to be demonized. They like all this rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric, but it's why you're never going to see any sort of real solution because they want the border to be porous, uh, not because they want free labor with all of the rights of citizenship that entails, but they want precarious labor. They want undocumented immigrants who, if they get too uppity, they can deport at a moment's notice. They don't want people yep. coming here with the full freedom and rights that are associated with citizenship. And that's, you know, that's why you don't see anything that's actually like something like open borders. You see this porous closed border that allows people to come in on a contingent basis, whether they're documented or not, uh, that can be sent back at the whim of the boss. So and, they can be um, exploited. And, yeah. yeah. And this is the result. This is the result of that system. You're going to have 12, 13, 14 year old children working in facilities with amputation hazards. Um and you're going to have the people who are supposed to be supposed to be protecting them, people like the Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall, uh, not doing anything. It's yeah, just how many, really how many reports is it going to take before we see? I I'm curious because like crazy. It's it's really really disgusting. So I wanted to give that to you definitely again. Check out their report. Reuters investigates undocumented and underage. Um, and the title is Child Workers Found Throughout Hyundai Kia Supply Chain in Alabama. With that, we are going to go to Adam's, uh, uh, what Adam has prepared for overtime today. Uh, ben, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me in the studio. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you Appreciate guys it. for weathering the storm <laughs> through yeah. two, two crashes, which are pretty rare. Usually the whole thing doesn't yeah, fall yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, Thank you. Guys. So with that, let's uh, let, let's go ahead and, and play what Adams prepped for y'all. Indeed. Hey, good morning, folks. This is the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. Really appreciate you tuning in. My name is Adam Keller, and I want to thank you for spending a little bit of time this morning looking at news commentary and analysis by and for working class people here in the south so over the past few weeks we've hosted conversations about the state of the alabama democratic party and taking a look at this year's election results i wanted to start there and examine our conditions i wrote a couple segments about alabama's political engagement and we're going to start by looking at the conditions we're facing here in Alabama. 
So we've had some conversations about the Alabama Democrats. We've looked at the election. We also had an illuminating conversation with Mark Dudzik about the U.S. Labor Party effort during the 1990s. It's in that context I want to mention a new study on Alabama political engagement and talk further about the state of Alabama electoral politics for working class people. About a month before the election, a new study from WalletHub ranked Alabama voters as among the least politically engaged in the country. Per an Alabama political reporter article by Jacob Holmes, quote, the study found Alabama to rank 48th above only West Virginia and Arkansas. The study weighed 10 metrics to determine political engagement, including the percentage of registered voters in the 2020 election, percentage of electorate that actually voted in the 2018 midterms, percentage of electorate who actually voted in the 2020 presidential election, total political contributions per adult, and other factors. The study found a strong correlation between a state's level of education and political engagement. Alabama ranked 45 in education compared to 48 in political engagement. The study also took into account voter access policies and voter education. Alabama does not allow for mail-in voting, curbside voting, or early voting. Allison Johnston, an associate professor at Oregon State University, said that education and income correlate highly with voter turnout along with ease of voting. So they also mentioned in the study in regards to income that only 47.1% of American voters with a family income of 10000 and under voted in the 2020 election. And now that was the record-breaking presidential election that saw voter turnout nationally above 66%. Alternatively, a much higher 84.8% of American voters with a family income of 150000 or more voted in the 2020 election. While income is not a perfect substitute for class, it does support a broader theme we see with the middle and upper classes voting at higher rates than the working class. By and large, workers are less likely to vote than their bosses and landlords. A few other relevant statistics for Alabama. The total population is about 65% white and about 27% black. Folks 25 and older with at least a bachelor's degree or higher equals about 26%. Folks 65 and older made up about 17.6% of the population which I actually thought would be higher. About 16% of Alabamians are considered to be in poverty. Per capita income is $28,934, and the median household income is about $52,000, which means a hell of a lot of people are close to poverty. So with that in mind, let's consider last month's election in Alabama. 61.5% of Alabama's more than 3.6 million registered voters did not vote. That's less than 4 in 10 participating, and that's just those who are registered, not including those not registered or not eligible. Looking at the top of the ballot with the governor's race, KIV won in a landslide against someone who could, you know, hardly be considered a serious contender. But ultimately, Ivy only won 26% of registered voters. 24% of eligible adults, 18.7% of Alabama's overall population. I think it's a mistake to conflate the lopsided election results we saw 
as indicative of the state as a whole. You know, the far right might claim a popular mandate, but the numbers don't completely bear that out. A majority of Alabamians did not participate, and as I referred to with the WalletHub study, that isn't unusual, even if 2022 was the lowest turnout in a few decades. For me personally, I voted, and I will always vote as long as I have the opportunity. But I do understand why so many opted out. As I mentioned, voting is more difficult in Alabama than in other states, and I shouldn't have to remind folks of our state's long, ugly history of disenfranchisement or the disproportionate impact of mass incarceration. People are trying to survive, busy with work, family, health, and they have to be informed about how and where to vote, and of course, have to have some motivating reason on why to vote. This election clearly did not motivate the masses in Alabama. It didn't help that many of the races were literally not competitive, as numerous candidates ran unopposed. I mean, hell, out of 26 offices on my ballot, only seven even featured Democrats, and some of those were basically campaigns in name only. Just for reference, the Libertarians fielded 12 candidates. That's more than the Democrats if you're keeping up. There were more unopposed GOP candidates on my ballot than Democrats. That doesn't inspire much turnout, and we're just talking about the quantity of candidates, not even getting into the quality of the campaigns. Now, as we recently discussed on the show, the Alabama Democratic Party is not, and for years has not, been a viable opposition to one-party GOP rule and political domination from the right. A party that cannot field candidates for half the races, much less all of them, could hardly be considered functional. A party that does well to lose by less than 20 points statewide and in most districts could hardly be considered competitive. And those are just a couple of many symptoms of deeper issues. So, the party can't seem to field candidates can't seem to raise money, can't seem to generate good press, can't seem to host regular meetings, can't seem to post on social media, can't seem to host online trainings, can't even seem to send regular emails, can't or won't. If we were to find out the Republicans have been secretly controlling the ADP over the past decade, how different would it actually look? Would it even be surprising, given the results? It almost seems you have to try to be as bad as they've been. It would be kind of hilarious if we weren't all the butt of the joke. Now, maybe you think I'm being too critical. But the majority of Alabama, effectively, does not have representation. Does not have any legit opposition to the far right. And has not for years. My entire adult life, sadly. And if that's not worthy of political criticism, I don't know what is. Which is all separate from the bigger picture that the National Democratic Party is ultimately a party of capital and empire, not the working class. But I'm going to leave that alone for now and return to Alabama. If you know much about Alabama politics, you know that we have been a one-party state 
politically dominated by the right for most of our history, even if the party labels have changed over the years. We are living in the shadows of historic defeats of Alabama's working class, including the defeat of the turn of the century populist and the unfinished work of reconstruction and civil rights. The state has for most of its history been dominated by so-called big mules, the wealthy, elite, powerful interests that dominate our politics, our economy, and our society. And today, the Alabama Republican Party is happy to serve them and their interests with minimal opposition. And if everyday people, white and black, native and immigrant, gay and straight, if we cannot unite, we will continue the societal downward spiral of exploitation, oppression, and environmental collapse. So we've been taking a look at Alabama's political engagement, starting with examining our current conditions. I want to move now to look at what do we do next? How do we move forward? One thing that always comes through to me in the Alabama Democratic Party conversations I've observed and participated in is that neither of the two apparent main factions that have quarreled over the years seem all that interested in engaging labor, the left, or for that matter, most anyone under the age of 50. We've seen the last few election cycles under Worley, England, and Kelly that were total disasters by any metric. Obviously, in fairness, Kelly came after candidate qualifying this year, so it remains to be seen what will come from his leadership. But based on the conversations hosted on this show, there certainly seems to be a disconnect between leadership and many of the activists. I am not alone in wanting an interracial working class movement that can shift the balance of power in our state. A movement carrying forward the torch of movements past. I think that's our best hope to address the multiple layers of crisis we're facing. We have to fight bigotry, oppression, and exploitation with love, justice, and solidarity. The working class is the majority and is the most diverse class. We need to be strong enough to not only win elections, but so much more. To the extent we need leaders, I want leaders who are of, by, and for the people. We need more democracy, not less. And I think an organized working class is how we get it. Now, when I say such things among Democrats, many of them look at me like I'm speaking a different language. And I guess in some ways, you know, maybe we are. Which leads to the question of what should be done. How can the working class move forward politically in Alabama? Or can we? Some will reject electoral politics altogether, focusing on workplace and community organizing, mutual aid, and or other efforts. I think there are essential ways to build people power, particularly with workplace unionization and organizing that are outside of political elections. We need that. Uh, we obviously are huge believers of that, uh, at the Valley Labor Report as a union show. We encourage everyone to start in their workplace. But should we completely abandon electoral politics? 
There are those who say we need a new independent working class party, a new labor party. I'm certainly intrigued by the idea of having our own political party of, by, and for the working class and with a base of power in the unions. But there are drawbacks to account for and questions to answer with that strategy. How to overcome a political system designed to exclude third parties. How to reach the working class folks who do currently vote Democratic or even Republican while still activating new members, new voters. And to what extent is there support for such an effort inside the unions as of now? There are still others who would say we have no choice but to work inside the Democratic Party. That's where the numbers are. That's how the system is structured. That is the easier or more likely pathway to building an opposition to one party right wing rule and making some gains for working class people. Uh, but there's certainly reasons to be skeptical about that pathway. And if you're not sure what those reasons are, I would encourage you to check out virtually any uh, current labor issue now uh, under a Democratic administration. There are no doubt smart, dedicated folks already pursuing all of these strategies. There's pros and cons to each approach. I think we've seen examples of all of these strategies and more throughout history and throughout different states and regions. And I think those case studies are worth examining so that we can get a clearer picture of what activists and organizers in Alabama should be doing moving forward. Now, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I'm going to lean towards an all of the above approach for now. I think we have to strengthen our coalitions and networks of solidarity and collaboration, strengthen our relationships, unite the organizers and activists across the state link up the folks who are already doing this sort of stuff even if it is in different arenas or through differing strategies we have to reach that 60 plus percent of non-voters and expand beyond the alabama democratic party's usual ceiling of 35 to 40 percent of the 35 to 40 percent of alabamians who are actually voting but at the same time, we still have to organize amongst the workers who are consi consistently voting. We have to reach as many Alabama workers as possible, some of whom are being reached by Democrats, some of whom are being reached by Republicans, and most of whom are not really being reached by either. I reckon that starts by connecting folks that are already trying in their own ways and building out from there our capacity to reach more workers. I'm wondering if we need a grassroots effort to establish a coalition that can develop a political program. A coalition around a worker-first, progressive platform and strategic framework. Then look for candidates who will run on a coordinated slate on this political program whether that's inside or outside the ADP, or maybe some combination, depending on the circumstances. In my assessment, there's a small but important left labor social justice base out there in Alabama, inside and outside of the Alabama Democratic Party, that has the potential to bring together such a coalition. A coalition that can not only develop a common campaign platform, 
but a real program of outreach and education while connecting existing movements and organizers, lifting up the good solidarity work already being done across the state, and highlighting current struggles in need of solidarity. <clears throat> Whilst in, it's an imperfect measurement of this base that I'm describing, it's worth considering that over 100 Alabamians showed up to the Troublemaker School in October. Based on that alone, I estimate a core of the most activated and militant worker organizers in the state to at least be a few hundred strong. Could that be the basis for a new coalition? Based on 2016 and 2020 primary election results, there's a solid block of about 75,000 Bernie voters who right now have no voice in Alabama politics or leadership. Could that be a pool of sympathetic workers? Not only a pool of potential supporters, but importantly, potential activists and organizers who can, in turn, grow the numbers. While Alabama's union membership is way too low, we do have higher density than most states considered to be in the South, with estimated membership ranging from 6% up to 10% of the workforce. Of course, there's varying levels of organization and militancy there. But these unions have networks, have resources, have PACs. Some of them, maybe most of them, might be too conservative to do anything outside the box. But maybe not all of them. Could the established unions provide a base of support for such an effort? To be sure, these are really small numbers compared to the overall electorate. But we also know that organizing is a means towards addition and multiplication. Could that be the foundation for a militant minority that could advance an Alabama labor-first political movement? Or am I just talking out of my rear end? I'm really curious what our listeners think, as many of you would be among the most militant and organized workers in the state. I certainly won't pretend to have all the answers or the right prescription. I do think it's important that we have these conversations, and my goal is mostly to facilitate more dialogue among the folks who could be considered the militant minority. Right here in Alabama, there are some brilliant, courageous, justice-minded folks doing good work through their unions, their political organizations, their advocacy groups, and in the broader community. The more those folks, the more y'all can put your heads together, the more solutions we can find to these pressing questions. For those of us committed to a better Alabama, whatever approach we take over the next four years, we got to keep organizing for positive change and interracial people power in spite of the Democrats and Republicans. We need to have more collaboration and build sustainable networks that can support people when they do organize for positive change. Typically, change comes from the bottom up. If, if we can transform Alabama politics, it will be through the power of working class people coming together around our common interest. All right.
right, folks, you're still listening to the Valley Labor Report. We are Alabama's only union talk radio program. And I'm really excited about this next conversation we have. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we try to highlight uh, folks inside of Alabama, folks particularly in the northern half of Alabama who are doing good work, whether that's inside a union or outside the unions. And that's what we're doing here today. I've got Rob Burton on the show. And I'm really excited for him to tell us a little bit about his organization, Sweet Alabama. So, Rob, you mind introducing yourself and tell us how you got into activism and organizing? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me on, Adam. Um, I'm excited to be here to talking with you all today. Uh, so I guess a little bit about me. Um, so I should I should note that um, I I. I came from a family that was involved actually in, in investment banking. Wow. So I actually grew up in the top 1%. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Not, not your typical story that you're going to, you're going to hear on, on here when I, right. <laughs> no, that's not what I expected. Um, so I should say I have, I have something called cystic fibrosis, uh, which is a chronic illness. Um, and it predominantly affects my lungs and my pancreas. So my first three years, you know, between I was born and I was three, I was basically two weeks in, two weeks out of the hospital. And uh, luckily the, you know, medicine for that has come a long way. Uh, and I had, because of that, that, econo that economic background, right, of my family, I had uh, all of the, I was lived in a community that didn't have as much air pollution. I had all of the, all of the resources I needed for, for nutrition and healthcare and all of that stuff to put me in the position to, to have the kind of help I have now, uh, which, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of folks who would have been born with CF back in the eighties done, didn't have those kind of opportunities. And so um, I'm in a much better position than most folks. Um, but my, yeah, my dad worked on wall street. He did actually merging and acquisitions. So he helped large companies become larger companies Um and I really got involved in the community first and foremost uh, because of my cystic fibrosis, just or starting canvassing in sixth grade, organizing my sixth grade buddies to come to the, the, the fundraisers, the big walkathons, all that kinds of stuff. And um, my dad, after 9-11, lost his job um, and he moved out to L.A. and um, he became a really bad alcoholic and cocaine addict. And he ended up taking his life when I was in high school. And so that just kind of thrust me further into community work. Um, you know, between that, my CF, I just knew that I wanted to be involved in addressing issues in our community. And I didn't have any kind of political analysis. So it was more like tutoring middle school kids and stuff like that. Um, but I guess I went to, I went to UAB for, for college and um, you know, Birmingham's got one of some of the worst air pollution in the country. Uh, and that just kind of propelled me into a lot of environmental organizing, but specifically through a lens of what's called environmental ableism, which is not discussed very much. Uh, we often talk about racism and, and classism. Uh, we don't as much talk about the environmental ableism. So people like myself who have chronic illnesses that are disproportionately affected uh, by that, that pollution. Um, and that, that really, I think is kind of my tie in from an intersectional organizing position. 
Um, and I know that, you know, if I was born in more of a working class background, I'd, I'd realistically be dead, you know, from, uh, because of this disease. Um, and so kind of being able to be involved in that intersection around environmental labelism, class, um, race, so forth. Um, so that was kind of in college. And then I've been, I've been working for nonprofits doing or doing organizing for the last 10 years at kind of that intersection around race, class and uh, race, uh, class and, and environmental issues. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a story, honestly. And I, <laughs> and I, I appreciate you sharing it with me and I, I appreciate the journey that you've been on, uh, to get to this point. Um, I think it, yeah, I think it, it says a lot about you that you're, um, you're willing to, to kind of own that story and, and, uh, recognize some of the privileges that you had in addition to some of the struggles that you've had and, and how those have related with each other and, and, uh, have propelled you to try to get involved. I really respect that. And, um, something that you, you mentioned about the air pollution that really resonated with me because I've been learning more and more about that myself and trying to, you know, come at it from a labor perspective, analyzing the environment and how it affects working class people. And I've been lucky enough to to learn a little bit more in, in recent months, including from some folks down in your neck of the woods, uh, GASP, for example, um, Panic, and, and some other organizations. And so, yeah, you're doing good work. I really appreciate that. And, and I think now's a good time for you to tell us about Sweet Alabama and your organization. What are you all all about? Absolutely. So <clears throat> I guess I should start by saying, you know, so Sweet in itself, there were seven of us who founded it in 2017. Um, it's always been, um, you know, a, a predominantly, uh, the founders were always been predominantly black women. Um, and most of us live in the Birmingham area. And we created it because we realized that in particular, being able to address these issues from that intersection with labor, there was not an organization really working truly from that class perspective in this work. Um, so before, before I worked in, for, before I helped found Sweet, um, I did a lot around this intersection, but it was more related to agriculture. Um, and um, I think because of my, my own issues around with my lungs and, and that air pollution, um, looking at that through that lens with when it comes to energy has always been something that I've had a big interest in. Um, and so, so we, we founded that in 2017. And in particular, what we wanted to do was, um, you know, when it comes to addressing energy, a lot of folks say, try and organize against the Public Service Commission, which is important, or do that kind of policy work. And what we really wanted to do um, was be able to address it on more of the community level, first and foremost. So right. how do we, so in Alabama, we don't just have the highest energy bills, residential energy bills. Uh, like in Birmingham, we have the highest, what's called energy burden. So percentage of income spent on energy, on that energy. And the reality is the reason why we have such a high energy burden is not simply because of our high energy bills. It's because we have had such a high poverty rate that folks' homes are so dilapidated that they're living in that 
the amount of energy they're using because their houses are dilapidated um, is is much higher than than in most states. Right. Uh, the story of of the South in general, right? And so, how do we how do we help? Uh, we have a lot of folks in our community that are either, you know, that are trained as as say plumbers or electricians that are maybe unemployed or underemployed. Um, and how do we essentially help either organize folks in that situation or young folks who are interested in going into these technical fields? and teach them how to uh, do home energy retrofitting, which we look at as in much more expansive as the the typical environmental group. Most folks would look at that as purely about energy efficiency. Uh, But the problem with that is (laughs) if if your HVAC system, if your heating and cooling system for your house doesn't work, then trying to make your house more energy efficient doesn't mean anything. Right. right. You have to take a more holistic approach around what that means to help folks address their housing. Uh, and an average house uses about three times the amount of, of energy as your average car. Right. So this is a we, this is ability where we can we can decrease folks energy bills by around 40 percent. That's 40 percent more of that money going to help folks, you know, put food on their table, buy books for their kids when they're trying to go to school, uh, you name it. But it also is a way for communities to build their own economies. Um, if folks don't have control over the economies in their community, um, then all of that, you know, that's, that's, that's the issue, right? That's the political mm-hmm. issue. That's the economic issue. It's folks not having control of those, those that com- economics in their community. So, we can help folks begin to build their own community owned businesses. Um, that can be in collaboration with unions or it could be separate. Um, there's a lot of work in the country around unionized worker owned cooperative businesses. Um, Which we're a big fan of, uh, obviously on this show. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, and so that's kind of the, the route I think that, that we're moving towards as an organization is how to use this work around housing um, and energy to, to be able to build like community owned cooperative businesses and, and potentially unionized cooperative businesses. I think uh, that's so cool because you're, you're doing a lot of things really at once. You're hitting a lot of areas at once. You're, you're addressing by reducing energy consumption, right? You're addressing climate change. You're, putting money into people's pockets by reducing their bills uh, and then looking at a bigger picture of actually like growing wealth in a community from the bottom up. And, um, and I think those are the kinds of ideas we need to be working on really. And um, so I think, uh, I think everything you just described about sweet Alabama and what y'all have going on is, is very interesting to me. I think it's much needed. Uh, I'm not familiar with any organizations up in North Alabama necessarily that are doing exactly what y'all are doing down in the Birmingham area. So, you know, who knows? Maybe someone listening is going to get some inspiration from this. Um, I wanted to ask next, was there any specific projects or anything that y'all have that you're working on right now that you wanted to talk about? Or is there anything maybe coming down the pike uh, that you expect in 2023? Um, so I guess I can, I can say two things. One, which is, 
related to our programming, one which is related to some policy work. Um, because ultimately to address these, these issues that we just discussed, right, you, you need ultimately both. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the one is definitely around, around home energy retrofitting. Um, we had originally put it kind of, we'd st- on pause, mostly on pause during the beginning of the pandemic because we are going into people's homes. Uh, but we did restart that program this year and we'll be just further extending and expanding that next year. Um, so, you know, the goal is there's kind of a, a two prong thing, right? One, which is being able to simply pay folks for their, for their labor who want to, to, to be able to go into a home and retrofit it. The other is being able to train folks, um, and essentially functioning as more of like a mutual aid program, uh, where we can go in, uh, I, I have options for people who want to do it DIY if they don't want anybody in their home. Um, but the other is being able to actually train folks where we can, uh, as one community member, it kind of told me is like, if we could train a folks on mass to do this, we could literally just kind of go down the block and just start retrofitting everybody's home, like down in the week, you know? So, and that would be so amazing. And I think that's, that's the kind of, um, you know, vision that we got to have. And, you know, what if, what if we do, what if we do that? Right. I mean, it, that would be so life-changing for so many people. Absolutely. So that will be, that's one way that people will be able to get involved um, is kind of through that route. Um, and the other, which is kind of more of our, our policy angle, which um, we got involved, we're, we're supportive of something called the Gulf South for Green New Deal, which is a really extensive, expansive policy that includes a lot around labor, around how it relates to military and, and prison expenses, like you name it, it's in there. Um, and so, um, I do think the name holds a little bit of baggage to some people, which is a, a messaging conversation to have, but the policy itself is really comprehensive and, and beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I just learned about it. Um, so I was in Houston a couple months ago for the uh, Power Up Gulf Climate Summit. Uh, awesome. And just, yeah, that's where I met some of the, the sisters and brothers with GASP and um, some of the other organizations, both in Alabama and elsewhere. And that's where I first learned about uh, the Green New Deal for the Gulf South. And I think that's, um, yeah, it's very interesting because the Gulf South, we have some of our own unique challenges down here in many senses of that word, uh, but, you know, including the environment itself and, and the, the, just the sheer location of uh, petrochemicals and, and other polluters in our environment. Right. So I think we, we got into a conversation essentially in 2020, our organization with seven others, and it was basically, well, how, what would need to be happened to, to fund something like this, right? Because ultimately this is, this is not just a federal thing, right? This, this requires conversations on a local level, county, state, and there was ultimately the conversation of <clears throat> the, the, the biggest issue with being able to fund these kinds of programs around housing and, um, and issues around being able to build, you know, community-owned economies around agriculture, you name it, is that people don't have control over how their, their city budgets are spent. Um, and so we're working towards in Birmingham, which we want to support anyone, anyone else who lives in another municipality, essentially be able to use this model. But we want to pass something called participatory budgeting, mm. uh, which literally just means that uh, either a percentage or in, in some cases, that has been the entire an entire budget um, 
the the instead of it kind of being passed in Birmingham by the nine by sorry the ten elected officials and that's it in a city of over two hundred thousand people that residents themselves can create their own proposals and <clears throat> vote directly on which proposals are their priorities to make sure that the budget funds those um, so that way if you want your park to be fixed up or you want to build a community-owned farm you can vote directly for that and maybe not vote to support, say, more corporate subsidies. Um, so these are the kinds of conversations that we're having. And there'll be both a lot of canvassing opportunities where folks can help us go door to door or phone bank um, or other, other things along those lines to support this work. I think that's fantastic. I've, uh, I've always been fascinated by the idea of the participatory budgeting. And I think um, a lot of times folks in political spaces do get so wrapped up in national politics that we we neglect how important it is to start local. Uh, and I think that's that's one of those areas where there's a lot of really cool things that can be done. And then you link that up with movements to grow co-ops and to grow community land trust and, and community owned farms. And um, suddenly, yeah, you are building a, a, a more democratic uh cooperatively owned and operated type of economy in your area and i think that's the that that should be one of our goals uh looking ahead especially given the challenges that we we're going to be facing i mean we already are facing multiple layers of crisis in this state and it's only going to get worse given the state of the climate um so i think this sort of these sort of projects to grow wealth from the bottom up to grow people power and to build resiliency in our communities. It's, it's, you know, it's right on time. Uh, it's right on time. So yeah, really appreciate what y'all are doing in Birmingham. And I think, uh, I think you're right. Hopefully some other folks in other cities uh, across Alabama will, will be able to watch what you guys are doing and, and maybe take some inspiration there because, you know, in Huntsville, for example, it's, it's six elected officials. Uh, for a city that is now technically bigger than Birmingham, apparently. Yes. yes. Uh, you know, I know I know the metro area is definitely bigger in Birmingham, but um, so Huntsville's growing and, um, you know, five city councilors and a mayor are, are making the determination on a pretty massive budget. Uh, and, you know, we've we've talked at length on this show about some of the issues with the Huntsville Police Department. Uh, and I know. You can go to any city and find similar type issues, but, you know, it's a budget's a reflection of priorities. Absolutely. And um, to me, that would start with the actual participation in the budget itself. Um, if people's voices are not heard in the process, how can we expect the outcome to reflect, you know, the people's interests? So I really, yeah, I, I think that's intriguing and, and, uh, I love that y'all are doing that. I'll, uh, I'll end that with this one point that you, based on what you just said, which is our most recent canvassing uh, that we we were doing this year, um, the, the stat was that folks only felt like the budget was 42% equitable in the city of Birmingham. Mm. That's, uh, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty, you know, pretty bad stat right there. Um, and it's and there's no effort to to address that so you know it's interesting you bring that up because um 
you know, one of the other segments I, I'm recording this week is on the political engagement in Alabama and the extremely low political engagement, according to all these various metrics. Uh, but then you go talk to people face to face and less than half of them feel like the budget is at all equitable. I mean, you start to see why there is this disengagement. Uh, right. And participatory budgeting is one way for folks to be engaged in the community uh, and have a little bit more of a say so in the wealth of their community that they all contribute to. We all do. So I, I did want to switch gears uh, with the last little bit of this conversation, because I know that you were at the Troublemaker School in Montevallo in October. Um, so most of y'all who are listening probably remember Labor Notes did hold a training called the Alabama Troublemaker School, October, and um, held that in Montevallo. We had over 120 folks show up, including some folks from a couple of different states. Quite a number of unions and organizations were represented. Uh, and Rob, you were there, and you're coming at it from a little bit different angle than maybe some of the more traditional, you know, union members in the attendance. So that's why I was curious to know, you know, what did you think about the event? Um, and what were some of your takeaways, not just from the event, but also from the audience? Absolutely. Well, I, I want to, I guess, I think my first, my first thought is recognizing also that this is, it's the first of its kind. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of great organizing going on in the state the last, you know, decade uh obviously in the labor realm we've in the last two years in particular yeah. uh we still have two different unions on strike in alabama um and uh so and not that doesn't even include everything happening at, at amazon which of course is another big name one going on in that space right um so i, I think to me the first my first takeaway is that it it is a sign of of how the movement is is building and growing in strength in Alabama. Um, and, you know, I, as you mentioned, it had amazing, amazing participation, especially for a first event. Um, and, and, and how many different sections of the movement were brought together. And I think ultimately that ability for us to come together in that collective way to, to discuss, to build relationships, which is a crucial one, uh, and to strategize is what it's going to take for us to build the mass, a mass movement necessary. Um, and, you know, this is, this is Alabama. Like we have an, <laughs> a very long storied history of being able to build mass movements. Uh, and on a national scale, I feel like the South is often ignored uh, very heavily for its contributions uh, to building mass movements in this country. I mean, the union movement started in the South and in Appalachia, and we're not credited for that. It's and so recognize. I think, I think us being able to come together to rebuild those relationships across different sections of the movement um, is what it's going to take to build that that power. Um, and I think we definitely succeeded on that. From union organizers to rank and file members to immigrant rights groups to, uh, you know, socialists and, and, and environmentalists. Uh, we really had a large swath of folks there. Um, and I think that we're only having discussions about how we can build off of those relationships moving forward. Um, 
on a personal level, you know, I, I also think uh, personally, I learned some cool like additional nuances about union contracts. And um, I think honestly, it was during the training that you led um, where we were discussing some nuances around, around union contracts and some of the organizing that goes on, uh, you know, in between contract negotiations to push for more concessions. Um, and I found that really interesting and, and um, it really helped me kind of envision some of that a little bit differently in, in a positive manner. Right. Uh, so it's definitely when we, whenever we do more trainings along these lines in the future, I think this is a huge resource that folks should come to. Yeah. And uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you had those takeaways. Um, and, and I really agree with you about the South and, the way we're often neglected in the national political scene, uh, the way we're often written off. Um, you know, yes, it's a fact that our governments are dominated by reactionaries. Nobody knows that better than we do. We have to live <laughs> under them, right? <laughs> and and that goes to your point that we have all always uh, been at the forefront of building mass movements in this country, you know, because we haven't had a choice. Um, you know, and and often we're dealing with issues of oppression and exploitation here uh, before other folks are. Um, sometimes we're the testing ground, or you know, however you want to look at it. So, yeah, I think it uh, I think it is remarkable to to see a gathering of any sort in, in a place like Alabama uh, like that that does have that diversity of of you know what I'm just going to call like the people's movement broadly, um, from labor to environment to social justice and i i think you're right i think the more uh the more we put our heads together the more problems we can solve and and, and the more um folks we can bring along because i'm sure for every you know one person that was there there were two or three that you know would have been interested in being there suddenly you start doing the math you're looking at a few hundred you're like wait a second we've got a few hundred pretty dedicated activist types in the state of alabama what could we do if we all you know, or coordinating and growing our networks because we all know some folks uh, and you start you start growing that. And I think to me, um, knowing that there are folks out, out there like you folks, uh, like the folks in your organization doing the kind of work you're doing happening all over Alabama. Uh, and, and that's been one of the the greatest things about doing this show is learning more of this and learning who is out there, what kind of good work is already being done and trying to lift up that work. Um, because to me, that's what it's all about. If we're all pulling in the same direction, if we're all contributing the way we can contribute, you know, we can really make a difference. So Rob, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, was there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure uh, we talked about today or maybe any plugs you had to get out today? Um, I don't think I have any, any specific plugs okay. uh, now. Um, but you I, did have a couple of really, uh, interesting opportunities for folks to be getting involved in the year ahead in terms of canvassing and in terms of getting involved with, uh, the home retrofitting. So, um, for those of you who are in the Birmingham area, especially if you're looking for a way to get involved, both of those sound like really great projects. Absolutely. And, uh, I'm just looking forward to to continuing these conversations and, and building building these coalitions because um I, I 
really makes me think of speaking of that Southern history of, of cross collaboration between different aspects of the movement. You know, it, it just makes me think of, you know, striking, say striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and, and that bringing together, you know, the civil rights movement, the union movement, um, and even anti-war movements. And, and that, that's when change really starts to shift. And I think we're moving, we've got a lot of work ahead of us to, to get to that point, but we've finally turned that corner to get there, uh, to move in that direction. And, um, I think now's, now's the time if, if folks been on the fence about getting involved in organizing, now's the time to do it. Hell yeah. I think that's a great place to end. <laughs> Thanks again, Rob Burton. Appreciate all your time today. Uh, check them out, y'all. Sweet Alabama. You've been listening to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks again for your time, everybody. Time for a little labor history, y'all. Let's take a few minutes to share some of the December anniversaries in labor history, as well as important days from a social justice perspective. I compiled this information primarily from the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. This excellent planner is published by the Education for Liberation Network, and I wanted to make sure I gave them full credit. And of course, shout out to the Zen Education Project, which was also a key source. So let's get started. December 1st is World AIDS Day. The United Nations has designated this day to honor AIDS victims, focus attention on issues surrounding HIV AIDS, and organize anti-discrimination activities. We know how class and income significantly impact health outcomes. Love and solidarity to all of our fellow workers out there struggling with this disease and who have impacted loved ones. December 3rd is the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Launched by the UN in 1992, International Day of Persons with Disabilities aims to promote an understanding of issues faced by people with disabilities with a view toward ensuring the dignity, rights, and well-being of this often marginalized group. December 3rd is also the 40th anniversary of the UN World Program of Action Concerning the Disabled. The UN General Assembly passed Resolution 3752, creating the World Program of Action Concerning the Disabled, which aimed to create a global strategy to equalize opportunities for full participation of people with disabilities in social life and national development. A key element is the call to view disability rights as part and parcel to basic human rights. We obviously still have a lot of work to do. December 5th is the 80th anniversary of the Manzanar Uprising, which was one of the most significant acts of resistance in the Japanese internment camps. Tensions were already high in the camp because of mistreatment by the guards and suspected corruption among the administrators. Thousands of prisoners protested after one prisoner was arrested in the beating of another prisoner, believed to be informing to the administration. Two people were killed and several others were injured when guards fired on the protesters. While maybe not considered traditional labor history, the internment of Japanese Americans is part of American history we should never forget. December 10th is International Human Rights Day, celebrating the UN's adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, among other things, says, quote, 
everyone has the right to form and to join trade unions for the protection of his interests. December 18th is International Migrants Day. There are an estimated 200 million migrant workers in the world. The UN marks this date to recognize this diverse group of workers and the economic, social, and political contexts that affect their rights and livelihoods. This year's World Cup is just the latest international spectacle built on the blood and sweat of migrant labor. December 18th also marks the 50th anniversary of the Christmas bombing campaign of Vietnam. Toward the end of the Vietnam War, President Richard Nixon ordered a massive bombing of Hanoi and other cities. This 11-day campaign, known as Operation Linebacker II, killed more than 1,500 Vietnamese civilians. It's still unclear whether the bombings actually had any effect on the timeline of the end of the war. So many lives ruined by such a terrible conflict. In the labor movement, we know that immigrants have long been used as scapegoats, with politicians hoping to rile up nativist sentiments to distract and redirect working class outrage. December 24th is the 70th anniversary of the McCarran-Walter Act. This act reinforced the racist national origins quota system established by the Immigration Act of 1924. Annual quotas were set at one-sixth of one percent of each nationality's population in the U.S. in 1920, ensuring almost all available visas went to Northern or Western Europeans. While the new law reversed policies preventing immigration from Asia, it imposed a 100 visa annual limit for every Asian country, ensuring Asians would remain a tiny proportion of new immigrants. Just one chapter in a long story of immigration struggles with politicians deciding who gets an open door and who gets shut out. While 101 years is an odd anniversary, I did want to mention Christmas Day 1921 when the great labor leader, socialist icon, and in my opinion, true American hero, Eugene Victor Debs was released from prison. Sentenced to prison by the Woodrow Wilson administration for speaking out against World War I, his sentence was finally commuted more than three years after the end of the conflict by President Warren G. Harding. A good reminder of the ways free speech has never really been free in this country. The retaliation that has been directed at so many change makers throughout our history and the remarkable resolve demonstrated by organizers dedicated to building a better world. December 28th is the 110th anniversary of the first publicly owned mass transit system in the U.S. The San Francisco Municipal Railway was the first publicly owned and operated transportation system in a major American city. The government-owned system was strongly supported by the public after years of enduring for-profit monopolies that arbitrarily raised fares and mistreated workers. A bond proposal was overwhelmingly passed in 1909 to pay for the system. Other cities, such as Boston, Philadelphia, New York, offered public transportation, but they were offered, they were operated by private companies. And finally, we recognize that December is full of holy days for many of the world's religions. Whatever you do or don't celebrate, we sincerely wish all of our listeners a happy holiday season. All right, folks, you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. 
Alabama's only union talk radio show where we bring you news, commentary, and analysis by and for the Southern working class. I wanted to take a moment to note the recent passing of two legends among labor circles, Stoughton Lynn and Mike Davis. Mike Davis passed away in October at the age of 76. In the nation, John Weiner called Mike Davis, quote, a brilliant radical reporter with a novelist eye and a historian's memory. Lois Beckett in The Guardian wrote, quote, in more than a dozen books, Davis exposed the power struggles and betrayals that shaped the landscape and the people of Southern California, where he grew up, and also explored how similar power struggles between elites and working class people played out around the world. His unsparing political analysis earned him the nickname the Prophet of Doom, a title he disliked. But his idealism, insight, and flair for storytelling also made him an inspiration for generations of leftist writers and activists. I first heard of Stoughton Lynn when I attended my first IWW meeting and was recommended his book, Labor Law for the Rank and Filer. Zen Education Project wrote a lovely tribute, which I'm going to quote at length. People's historian Stoughton Lynn died on November 17th after an extraordinary life as a conscientious objector, peace and civil rights activist, tax resistor, professor, author, and lawyer. Lynn inspired us with his role as a people's historian, always working in solidarity with struggles for justice today. Lynn served as director of the Freedom Schools in the 1964 Mississippi Summer Project. He worked with prisoners and challenged the prison industrial complex. While teaching at Spelman College, his family and Howard Zinn's developed a lifelong friendship. Zinn said of Lynn, quote, he's an exemplar of strength and gentleness in the quest for a better world. Among Lynn's many books is Doing History from the Bottom Up, in which he described the three key perspectives that are guides for any teacher or student of history. One, history from below is not or should not be mere description of hitherto invisible poor and oppressed people. It should challenge mainstream versions of the past. Two, the United States was founded on crimes against humanity directed at Native Americans and enslaved African Americans. Three, participants in making history should be regarded not only as sources of facts, but his colleagues in interpreting what happened. After Freedom Summer, Lynn got involved in anti-Vietnam War organizing. Despite his talents as a scholar, academia closed their doors to him after he traveled on a fact-finding mission to Hanoi. In a memorial tribute to Howard Zinn at the Organization of American Historians, Lynn said, quote, when a comrade dies in the struggle for nonviolent revolution, we try to pick up his dreams. May we all do that now, pick up Lynn's dreams and his principled, grassroots approach to making those dreams a reality.